Well, it's safe to say we're all sucked in. We are all officially sucked in. The Mets have won again. They've won six in a row. They beat the Chicago White Sox. I'm out of breath. It just finished. Edwin Diaz continues to frustrate the crap out of you. I mean, even when he strikes out the first two guys and you think, oh, it's going to be easy. It's going to be a nice, somewhat stress-free save for Diaz. He gives up the home run to Larry Garcia. He then strikes out Ryan Goins. Okay, so it never got to the point where Abreu was coming up with a chance to tie the game. But the New York Mets, again, pull one out of their ass. They're 52-55, and and this is just weird. This is weird. You know, I've said before that when the Mets have bad seasons, and maybe this is going to be a bad season. Maybe it's going to end the way we expect it to, which is that they're going to lose 86 games. They're not even really going to be in a wild card race. They're not really going to play meaningful September baseball. I have no freaking idea. But usually when the Mets have a bad season, it all runs together, you know? And you think back to 2018 or 2017 or 2011 or 2010 or 2009 or 2004 or <laughs> 1995. They all run together as just bad years. And maybe that's what this season is going to turn into. But right now, this season is weird. The fact that a couple of weeks ago, they were 11 games under 500 and going nowhere. And the fact that now, after beating the White Sox, they are three games under 500. And right now, they are freaking four games out of a wild card spot. And a couple of the teams they're trailing are in their division who they're going to get a crack at, who they're going to get to play a lot of games against. So all of a sudden, you look at the standings, you look at the math, and it doesn't feel that crazy. But let's talk about this game. Because this was a very, very strange game. First of all, Jacob DeGrom continues to be really, really good. And it's typical of Jake in 2019. There's going to be a couple of innings where he's going to put guys on base and he's going to labor and he's going to throw 25 pitches. But much like last year, when Jake needs to get that big pitch make that big pitch, and leave two or three guys on base, he's able to do it. The story here was that third inning. Because in the third inning, Jake, who is so good with his command, especially that slider, which he throws so often now, he walks Ryan Goins on four pitches in front of Jose Abreu. Not a good idea. He walks A.J. Reed on four pitches, the definition of a Roberto Pettigini quadruple-A player. But then he strikes out Eloy Jimenez. But the one run they got there for a bunch of innings, felt like it was going to hold up because they could not get the big hit against Lucas Giolito. And they had opportunities. They had a leadoff hit in the second inning. They had a runner on second, one out. Todd Frazier hits one well, but it's caught by the left fielder. And Ahmed Rosario got absolutely robbed by Lowry Garcia. So they had that chance in the second inning. How about the fifth inning? Todd Frazier misses a home run by inches. But okay, runner on second, nobody out. Still get the run home. They can't even advance him to third base. Rosario, Echeverria, and Jeff McNeil, who's a mess right now. I'll get to him in a second. They can't take advantage of that. They finally, finally take advantage of it by scoring a run in the sixth inning when Ramos hits that ground ball to third base. And it was actually the only play Ryan Goins had. He makes the throw home and Conforto with a great slide. 
Really, really good slide getting around the tag to tie the game up. But we were all thinking the same thing. When Wilson Ramos comes up with a runner on first or first and second or first and third, we are all thinking he's going to hit the ball on the ground. It's going to be the easiest double play in the world. Because it feels as if 80% of the time, Wilson Ramos is hitting a weak ground ball to third base or a weak ground ball to shortstop. And guess what? He did. <laughs> he just, luckily, it was so weak, they had no chance to turn a double play. But when they tied the game in the sixth inning, I felt somewhat relaxed for a few innings because I had confidence in Jake. And Jake pitched an easy sixth inning. Then he ran into trouble in the seventh inning. And I give Mickey Calloway credit. I mean, I'm going to try to give him credit because there's plenty of things I want to bitch about him with. He lets Jacob DeGrom finish the inning. I thought the previous night he could have done the same thing with Noah Syndergaard. Now, Noah Syndergaard is not Jacob DeGrom, but Noah Syndergaard's pitch count in that eighth inning was still in the 90s. So it wasn't even a pitch count issue. But here with Jake, and why not? He pushes him. Let Jacob DeGrom throw 116 pitches. That's exactly what he did. Even with two on and one out, seventh inning, pitch count over 100. You've got Yammer Sanchez. You got Larry Garcia. You got Ryan Gones. Let DeGrom get it done. Because I'm not worried about pitch count with him. I'm not worried about overextending him because what are you saving him for? I mean, he is in the prime of his career. He's got his long-term contract. It's late July. These games freaking matter. You're damn right you leave Jacob DeGrom in to get the job done. And he did. And I, I, I honestly had no doubt. I'm not an optimistic fan when I'm watching these games. I think that's obvious sometimes on Twitter when I do decide to tweet during a game. But when Jake is on the mound with guys on base, I just believe in him. Why wouldn't I? And he struck out Larry Garcia and he gets through it. But here's where I lose my confidence. I think this is where we all lose our confidence, that this team will actually score freaking run for him. I mean, luckily they got the run in the sixth inning to take him off the snide. But then after he gives you the seven innings and he strikes out 11, and you know what's crazy about the 11 strikeouts? Jacob DeGrom only had one strikeout with two outs in the third inning. So think about the ratio he had to go on uh, really from the fourth inning on to get up to 11 strikeouts. 116 pitches, by the way. But once you have to hand that baseball to the bullpen and you're looking for this offense to give you something, that's where I lose my confidence. But the bullpen has been decent. I'll repeat that again. I mean, it's true. I'm not breaking any, uh, splitting any atoms here. The bullpen has been a lot better. You know, Justin Wilson has been halfway decent. Lugo's been good all year. Gazelman has his moments, as we saw the other night when he got those six outs. Now, I didn't have confidence in Justin Wilson, and I was surprised that Mickey let him kind of get through that eighth inning. If Seth Lugo's available, and he was, because Seth Lugo was warming up in the ninth inning, if Seth Lugo is available in this game, why isn't he in to face Eloy Jimenez? Why isn't he in to face Tim Anderson? I have no freaking idea. But he let Justin Wilson get through it, and he did. And the Mets, I think, got lucky. I think, on the umpire play where John Jay hits the ball up the middle and it went off Stu Shoewater. Here's why I'm not 100% convinced they got lucky. The ball's going towards the middle. Robbie Cano is darting towards that baseball. Cano, as much as I just want to crush him right now for five minutes, and maybe I will anyway, 
Robbie can still pull one out of his derriere. He can still pull off that nice backhand play. And he may have. And even if he doesn't get the out, he could have gotten exactly what occurred, which is the runner not scoring from second in Ryan Gones. So I don't know if they got lucky. I don't know. And the truth is, we'll never know the answer to it. But they obviously got the call right, as Gary Cohn explained on the broadcast. The umpires are on the infield. You only get one base, but then you got to take advantage of it. And Justin Wilson did by getting Tim Anderson to ground out. It was just a weird game because that umpire play is weird. You don't see that very often. But here are the other things. You got the replay issue. And, and this is tough because if you're, an, if you're a manager and you are told, hey, they may overturn this call, whether it's the second inning or the third inning or the fifth inning, you're obviously going to be urged to challenge. So when Danny Echeverria is thrown out at second on that base hit that obviously turns into a fielder's choice with Michael Conforto, the fly ball that fell in in right field, and it looked as if Anderson's foot had come off the bag, but you're told by your replay crew, hey, they may overturn this, you're going to challenge it. The problem is if you're wrong or they just decide not to overturn it because Major League Baseball is incredibly inconsistent with replay, that could leave you buck naked later on when there's another play to challenge. And that's exactly what happened on the wild pitch in the eighth inning in that same Justin Wilson inning. Remember, Gones gets the infield hit and a few pitches later ends up on second base on a bang-bang wild pitch in which the throw was perfect by Ramos and it, it was very, very close. And I'll tell you, with the Echeverria play at second, and the Goins play at second, I, I can't really tell. And you don't know what they're going to do. And as soon as, here, as soon as Gary Cohen said the crew chief in Chelsea was Angel Hernandez, you kind of knew the Mets were screwed. You knew, hey, they're not overturning this, despite the fact that it looked like there was space between Tim Anderson's foot and the bag at second. But I hate it because you're left naked in the eighth inning where they have this idea of, well, you can ask the crew chief for review. Review. You could politely ask them, hey, Mr. Crew Chief, can you review that play? It's so stupid. The truth is I'm not even a fan of the challenges. If there's a close play, beat down the umpires and then have that douche Angel Hernandez look at it in Chelsea. Don't make the, uh, the managers have to make a decision because there really is no strategic decision to it. You have no, you have the worst view ever if you're the manager. You don't know. You're trusting some intern upstairs, your video coordinator. But, but whatever. I mean, what, what am I going to tell you? I, I don't even know if they would have overturned that play at second base anyway, and it didn't matter. And then you've got the weird play in the ninth inning where I jumped out of my seat because J.D. Davis hits that fly ball to right field right down the line, and it looked like, hey, it's a fair ball, second and third, or maybe the run scores, but the run probably wasn't going to score because the brilliant manager didn't pinch run for Wilson Ramos, which I'll also get into in a second. But they reviewed that, and because they didn't have chalk down, you couldn't even tell. I mean, we all wasted a good 10 minutes of our life just based on replay today. But let's get to that Ramos decision. Mickey Calloway. After Wilson Ramos hits a ground ball to shortstop and Tim Anderson gets confused, he thinks Wilson Ramos is some kind of speedster. So he's trying to rush and he commits an error and the Mets get a very, very fortunate break. See, that's a lucky break to start the ninth inning. And Mickey doesn't pinch run. Dude, what the hell are you doing? You have Juan Ligaris, you have Aaron Altair, you've got Tomas Nito obviously to come in to catch eventually. 
you're playing in an American League ballpark. You don't even have the excuse of I've got to save guys. What would you even save them for? Injury to pitch in the 34th inning? What are you saving them for? You're not saving them for anything. And then he does pinch run for him after J.D. Davis pokes one up the middle for a base hit. You should pinch run for him immediately. You have a runner on first, nobody out. That is the potential winning run in the ninth inning. But no, I know if he's on first, I'm not going to pinch run. What a stupid move. What if that J.D. Davis ball was fair? What happens then, brilliant manager? What happens? Does Ramos score? He's slow as you know what. Just makes no sense. And he does this a lot, by the way. I've seen this before where he waits until the runner gets to second before he decides to pinch run. But the Mets have won six in a row. Why am I bitching? I don't know. I guess it's just this natural habit. J.D. Davis, what a job by J.D. He's behind in the count. He had done nothing offensively in this game. Remember, he bounced into that double play in the sixth inning, and he hits one right back up the middle to set up that rally in the ninth inning. Todd Frazier comes through with a big hit. He's starting to heat up. Rosario's flailing all over the place, mainly because, again, the brilliant manager puts a bunt on. Here's the problem with putting a bunt on. Can I tell you what the problem is? Upper run, first and second, nobody out. Logic would say, hey, that's not a terrible place to bunt. You know, even with Echeverria on deck, that's not terrible. He knows how to put the ball in play, even though he had struck out twice earlier in the game, and then you've got McNeil after that. Rosario's had a tough day at the plate, even though he's been hot lately. Lay down a bunt. Here's the problem. If the guy can't bunt, what's the point? If you're going to give a strike away like Ahmed Rosario did and it set him back in this at-bat, what's the point? If you have a guy that can bunt, if you have Brett Butler at the plate, fine. Lay down a bunt. You have Ahmed Rosario, who despite being 0 for 3, one of his outs was a highway robbery by Larry Garcia, and the guy's, the guy's got the highest batting average in the league over the last three weeks or month or whatever it is. And you're bunting. <laughs> this manager stinks. I'm telling you, I don't think I'll be able to make a pennant race. I don't think I'll be able to survive. I'll lose my mind. I will lose my mind watching this manager in a pennant race. But hey, Edwin Diaz is given insurance. He's given a three-run lead. I was hoping Seth Lugo would get the ninth inning. Diaz strikes out the first two guys. Of course, he's got to give up a home run. I mean, it can't be easy. And then he strikes out Ryan Goins. And I, I really am stunned. I am. And I really am happy. I think after an emotional win like this, it takes time for it to sink in, for me to really enjoy what the hell is happening right now. But I am still confused about what's happening. This was a team that was 11 games under 500. And I think we had all made peace with the fact that this season was going nowhere. And there were bits and pieces throughout this year where we would be teased. You know, even recently, they go to Minnesota. And by the way, how good are the Mets against the American League? I mean, nine and four now, geez. They go to Minnesota. They win that first game. They win the second game when they score 14 runs, right? Now, they're seven games under 500 still at this point, but they won two games against the Minnesota Twins, and they have these four games against the Giants. And you're thinking, all right, okay, maybe this is the run. Still middle of July. You're taking on a team you're chasing. Here we go. And, of course, it starts off with one of the most brutal losses you can have. And, by the way, I'm going to give you a tease about a podcast I'm going to do. I'm going to rank all the horrible losses this season and go through them. 
I don't know when I'm going to do it. Maybe at the end of the season, maybe when they're really out of this pennant race. I'm not sure when. But that 16-inning game on that Thursday night against the Giants, that's right up there. And even the next night when they lose one nothing in 10 innings and again, screw Jacob DeGrom. But think about that. Here they are. They're coming off two wins against the first-place team, the Minnesota Twins. They go to San Francisco, and they lose these two horrific baseball games. Give you a tease by winning Saturday and then lose another brutal game on Sunday. They lose three out of four when all of those losses could have been wins. Tease. Take it away from us. Then they win the first game against San Diego. All right, here we go. Home stand. They played well at home. And they have that just garbage effort in game two against San Diego where Lamette, who's on a pitch count, they can't touch basically over four innings. One of those lifeless losses. And at that point... Then nine games under 500. Why are we believing? I don't care who's on the schedule. Seriously. You could say all day they're playing bad teams. What would that even mean? That meant the Mets were then going to start beating everybody? And that's what they did. Jake's great on that Thursday afternoon. They sweep the Pittsburgh Pirates, including Steven Matz's awesomeness on the Saturday night they hold on with the Sunday game and now look the last two games against the White Sox two games that were set up to be absolutely brutal losses game one of this series they have a two to one lead in the ninth inning it is set up to be a brutal loss they win anyway in 11 and tonight was set up to be a brutal loss the whole way through they never had a lead in this game until the ninth inning so I'm trying to figure out how excited I should be how excited we all should be. And I I still don't know what the hell I'm supposed to think. And so I've decided I'm not going to think. I'm just going to enjoy the fact that they have made us care more than we did two weeks ago. And, And what I mean by that is, look, I think most people listening to this podcast probably watch every Met game and you're into every Met game the way I am, right? We're We're sucked in. We're still staying up late and watching every pitch. So when I say you don't care, it doesn't mean you don't care like you're not watching the games. I mean you start to emotionally come to the conclusion, hey, look, it's not going anywhere. I'd make a net analogy, but I feel like that would bother too many people right now if I somehow compared this to the Brooklyn Nets. I don't know if I should do that. I feel like there's a lot of Met fans who are Nick fans and they would resent me for any time spent talking about the Nets. So I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to say there was a lot of similarities. A lot of them. Now, let me get to this trade deadline. All right, let me get to it. And I'm going to be doing the afternoon show with JJ for the next week and a half. So I'm sure we'll spend a lot of time on what the Yankees didn't do, what the Yankees couldn't do, what the Mets did and all that. So we'll get to all that, I'm sure, at nauseum. But as far as what the Mets did, I found myself over the last two days confused. And what I mean by that is obviously they're winning games. They're playing better. They're making you care. And so trading Zach Wheeler for a minor leaguer that isn't going to help you right now does not improve your chances of this improbable dream we're all thinking about right now. But I'm also not a moron. Well, maybe I am. I also realize that there's a very small chance Zach Wheeler's back next year. The only way he's back is if the Mets give him the qualifying offer and Zach Wheeler takes it. Zach Wheeler is not going to sign an extension with the Mets, again, unless the caveat is they trade Noah Syndergaard, which I would be against unless you're getting this huge package back. 
the bottom line is this. When they decided to not trade Noah Syndergaard at this moment, which I'm in favor of, trading Zach Wheeler did make the most sense. But if you trade Zach Wheeler, and now look, if you're getting Harrison Bader back, who's had a terrible year because that was one of the the asks, potentially, or you're getting Kyle Tucker back, who would come right up to the major leagues and play for this team, or whomever you were trying to get from the New York Yankees, I get it. You are helping yourself out at the major league level right now. I don't think those asks were ever, ever realistic at all. But you're creating a new hole in this rotation, right? You added Marcus Stroman. Fine. You took away Zach Wheeler. You took away Jason Vargas. You're basically handing a rotation spot to Walker Lockett. But I wanted a prospect. But I was dreaming, hey, maybe the Astros would get desperate and give up Kyle Tucker. Maybe the Yankees would even get desperate and give the Mets that surplus of what they need to ever make a deal with the Yankees. So I was hoping they would get something significant for Zach Wheeler. But that was just never realistic. And when you hear the rumors of what Brody was asking for, it it sounds one of two ways. Either Brody Van Wagenen just had a high asking price and really didn't have a serious interest in trading any of these guys and looks at the alternative and says, hey, I'm fine. I'll give Zach Wheeler the qualifying offer. Maybe we'll bring him back and pay him $19 million a year, which I don't think Jeff Wilpon would like very much. Or maybe we'll take the draft pick and be happy with it and kind of look at that draft pick as being equivalent or maybe even better than any prospect you could have gotten back. Or maybe Brody Van Wagen is like a fantasy baseball player as GM. Maybe he really is what it would be like if Joe was the GM of the Mets. Or maybe if I was the GM of the Mets. Where we're literally asking teams for things they will never trade to us. You know? Like, I'm not going to pretend I know everybody's farm system, right? But I do know a lot of prospects. I know the big prospects on a lot of teams. I know who Gavin Lux is of the L.A. Dodgers, and I certainly know who Kyle Tucker is. So for me, it's easy to say, oh, you want Zach Wheeler? Well, I want Tucker. So it sounds as if Brody Van Wagenen is that. (laughs) And I'm, I'm sure he's not, all right? I'm sure he is got some kind of plan i just can't figure out what the hell it is i don't know what his plan is i have no idea what his plan is because the way they treated the deadline is a little contradictory if you're going for it now and that's why they traded for marcus stroman because think about it what the mets did at the trade deadline the yankees would have loved to have done get marcus stroman without giving up top level prospects add him to the rotation that's essentially what the mets did sure they dumped jason vargas in a salary dump, but looking at what their rotation is, they weren't going to have room for Jason Vargas. So it made the most sense. They didn't delete anyone else. They didn't add anybody else. They added Marcus Stroman, one of the better starting pitchers that were available at this trade deadline. If you're going for it, you'd also add bullpen help. Maybe you'd pay the money for Mark Melanson. (laughs) I can't even say that seriously. The Mets pay the money for Mark Melanson. Or trade for Sam Dyson. Or trade for Chris Martin. Or trade for Sergio Romo. Or whoever it is. It doesn't even have to be the biggest name in the world. It could be Sergio Romo. It could be. Why not? The biggest issue this team has had all year has been their bullpen. So you can't really say, well, we're going for it. We believe in the guys. You didn't have any bullpen help. And now that we sit here and it is August 1st, I don't like the fact that this deadline was July 31st. I was in favor of the one deadline, and I've said before they should move the deadline back, but I think it's even more obvious as we sit here today that they really need to move the deadline back. 
They really do. I mean, it's just too early. You still have two months left in this season. So many things could happen. If they had the normal deadline, if this was just like last year, Yankees are getting a pitcher. And maybe if the Mets keep winning, they're getting a bullpen arm. Because let's not forget, Justin Verlander was traded to the Houston Astros on August 31st. He was not traded there on July 31st, August 31st. And so even now, it's not as if the Mets have options to improve this bullpen if they continue to win games. I mean, sure, you could get somebody off waivers who's placed on waivers, but you're not acquiring anybody. You're not making a trade. You're not making one of those traditional trades that you can make in the middle of August. You know, a trade that once brought the Mets Addison Reed. Once brought the Mets Guillermo Mota. Not that that was great or anything, but it did happen. <laughs> yeah, they did add him. And I think he did pitch well for about a month. We just remember Scott Spezio in the National League Championship Series. That's our problem. So it was a weird deadline. I mean, everything about this Mets season, maybe it's because Brody is the GM, is just weird. Everything about it's been weird. The offseason was weird. The way this season is now going is completely bizarre. I don't know what to think. They're three games under 500 now. They're four games out of a wild card spot. That would have been unfathomable two weeks ago. And they just had a trade deadline where they traded for one of the best pitchers available. They didn't even give up that much, so I can't be that upset. They didn't give up any top 100 prospects. How can I be that angry about this trade? And he's going to be on the team next year. And he's better than Chris Benson. As much as I want to think, and I admit, it feels similar to what they did in trading for Chris Benson. A year in which you're on the precipice of being in a race. You're not really in a race. Benson's young. He's got a high upside. I think Stroman has had a better career to this point than Chris Benson has. And hopefully Stroman will have a better Met career than Chris Benson has. So it was just a very odd deadline. And it's been an odd season. And as we sit here right now, I guess now it's been a half hour since the Mets won this game against the Chicago White Sox, six in a row, 52 and 55. I have no freaking idea what's going to happen. And I can't even say it feels like 2016. 2016, the Mets were two games under 500 in August. Now, that's not good. I admit that. But they were never 11 games under 500. They were never as bad as what this team has been now. They were never as far back as what this team was. So 2016 was more, hey, they're hovering around 500, and then they had a hot six weeks, and that's how they got the wild card spot. This season is not like that. This is unlike any Mets season I've experienced. Is it going to continue? Are they going to get to 500? Are they going to get over 500? And then when they start facing good teams that they're competing with, are they going to be able to beat them? Is Edwin Diaz not going to melt down two on, two out against Juan Soto in a big spot? I don't know. But here's what I do know. This is kind of fun. It's kind of fun. It's a lot of stress. All right, I'm cursing out Edwin Diaz. I'm cursing out this manager. But you know what? I kind of like cursing them out. Relevant August baseball. Before we can get to relevant September baseball, you have to start in August. Anyhow, Mets beat the White Sox. They win the second game of this series. This has been an instant reaction podcast. Coming up next week on the Evan Roberts podcast, a SummerSlam preview with predictions. Our fantasy football preview is coming up. In the middle of August, and we'll even have a mailbag episode that was requested by a caller on my Saturday show. 
I'll be filling in with John Jastrzemski for Mike Francesa for the next week and a half. Thank you for listening to the Evan Roberts Podcast.